everybody. Welcome to another edition of the Columbia University Sports Podcast, The Cusp Show, where we talk about the business of sports and entrepreneurship and disruption and business uh, with various people from various walks of life who've, who've touched on various parts of careers. And one of the things, I'm Joe Favrito, by the way. Uh, before we get into that, I'm going solo this week without my partner, Tom Richardson, who's off doing other business things as we get ready for the early fall. But one of the things that, that we love to touch on, and we always kind of go into, is storytelling. Uh, and today we are going to have someone who is a storyteller on a global scale, uh, has just come off a pretty interesting run through the World Cup, um, which everyone knows who's probably listening, uh, the, the amazing advances that France made, which uh, Lindsay was witnessing almost firsthand as, as the project went through. But she's worked in a lot of areas of storytelling for diplomacy, uh, has really kind of worked in an, intri- an intri- interesting international space uh, in terms of storytelling. So, Lindsay Krasnoff, thanks for joining us today. Thanks so much for having me on. Um, it's a pleasure to be here and talking about all things storytelling in the global sports space and more. Uh, I, I have had a very fascinating career spanning communications, uh, storytelling, sport, and diplomacy. And it's often that last word that chips a lot of people up. Uh, however, in a globalizing a sport world and a, a global sport world, uh, sport diplomacy and the art, of the diplomatic art of communication, it plays an ever more important role up and down the sports industry uh, specter mm-hmm. um, in terms of internal storytelling and team communications, in terms of external storytelling and beyond. Um, I've gotten to this point in space uh, where I'd serve in a consultant uh, capacity um, through a variety of less traditional um, uh, um, uh, trajectories. I started off in journalism and media, uh, working on the sports media uh, publication side, changing publications. That was my first entry into journalism. And and uh, editing and everything that goes into making those programs that you get at every game and the late hours that entails turning it around on a very short Mm -hmm. basis for the local sections. I went back and obtained my PhD in history uh, for a variety of different reasons, uh, both skills and apprenticeship as well as kind of experience and the certain sense of confidence that it gives you as well in terms of what you've accomplished on your own and there I was focusing on sports history, on French sports history <laughs> specifically. and The niche of the niche. So It's pretty much as niche mm-hmm. as you can mm-hmm. get. But the really cool thing about working in the field of sport history or sport anthropology or sociology is there's a lot of direct tying into what's going on today and a lot of insights that can help avoid blunders. Um, there was a recent example with some of the Manchester teams this week as well as help to provide some interesting uh, ideas, brainstorms, and strategies for the future in terms of how you're trying to get the edge. Uh, and I also worked for several years with the U.S. Department of State in their Bureau of Public Affairs, so combining both my, my history work, my, my continued interest in the international world, and my communications skills. So, so for those who want to do a quick Google search, you'll find some of the stories that Lindsay's written in The Athletic, ESPNW, some pretty interesting stuff around the World Cup for Vice Sports this summer, uh, CNN International, The Washington Post, The New Yorker, many other places. Uh, 
what were some of the things, especially, let, let's talk a little bit about the immediacy of the World Cup, the experience, the, the kind of lens that you viewed the World Cup mm-hmm. through, um, and, and kind of the impact, especially a country like France had uh, in, in kind of the success that they had. But what, is it, what would that mean, tying it all together with some of the other the lenses that you look at through diplomacy, uh, social integration? You know, wh- what were some of the things you saw this summer coming out of the World Cup? I saw the best fairy tale ever. <laughs> <laughs> That's a good um, way to, f- to put it. I mean, so. I really couldn't have written a better story. Um, but yet, uh, what, what was one of the really fascinating things about France at this World Cup is that it was combining a lot of different angles that I work with and um, a lot of different understandings that I also have of not just the French national team, but also the sport and the sports culture at large in France because of my extensive work on and in French sports and the different um, people who I've now known for quite a long while um, through my different connections with Sporty Democrati and some of the other research work that I've done. I do interact very often with French athletes, past and present, coaches, administrators, um, spouses or family members. And so I do have a more holistic understanding of what the sport or what the team means to them from a variety of different angles and one thing I was really excited about heading into World Cup this summer is being able to translate this into some of the storytelling that I was trying to do for the um, American or Anglophone audience Um, and I think some of that came through with the athletic pieces when you know we talk about this really great um, quote that someone gave me uh, today life in France stopped um, after Kylian Mbappe just started tearing up the Rain, uh, 19 years old. I mean, it was a sensational story, but you know, getting at some of the, the more layered and complex aspects that helped to bring this particular French team together this summer and why they had everyone behind them, why, why it's so different from how it's been in pretty much the past 20 years, the significance of France winning t- 20 years and a day since their first World Cup win, and rather than focus on the, you know, the 1998, there was a lot of rhetoric about how the win really kind of signaled the uh, French future, which was multicultural. It had finally gotten over many of its um, perceived humps uh, in terms of coming to terms with its colonial past, which was quite brutal. Um, And that never really fell through. There was a lot of false sense of equivalency there. What made this summer quite different, and I noticed it, I was in uh, France doing meetings uh, about a week or two before the World Cup kicked off. There was definitely a different kind of feeling in the air. Yes, there was a lot of excitement uh, for the Russia campaign. Yes, there was also a lot of nostalgia. There was a lot of looking back and commemorating 1998. Not nostalgia, but certainly commemorating it. but there was also a sense of confidence within everyone in the sports world that I spoke to in June that, don't worry, we've got this. Hmm. Um, which is really kind of remarkable because when, when in a lot of my work, uh, when it, what I try to do with some of my storytelling is to provide some of the French athletes' perspectives um, and to help to translate why they might view the question of the identity of the national team differently from many of us many others in, in, in the West or in the United States. And uh, you know, one of the things that I kept hearing over and over was 1998, 
was a watershed moment in many ways, but also, crucially, it restored confidence within the sports world, um, within other aspects of France as well. And what, what we saw this summer was kind of a reinforcement of that. So taking a step back from that, and I want to talk about the difference in French storytelling to a French audience versus what you've had to do for storytelling to an American audience with a French background. But mm-hmm. you, know, you, you touched on some of the places that you've been, and, and I want to kind of also go back through there's kind of circuitous career that you've had because, uh, you know, when you look at the places you've been, the places you've taught, the places you spoke at, the places you've gone to school, you know, just to rattle them off, you know, Graduate Center at CUNY, Master's in Journalism and French Studies from NYU, Bachelor's in International Affairs from GW. Are you leaving any, any other stops out along the way from an academic standpoint? And you've taught at many of those places as well. Um, so how, did, how does that all come together when you're trying to tell a story, how do you take all those pieces of, you know, historical background and put them together in a story for like the athletic that you're trying to tell to an audience that may have no idea about what it is you're trying to talk about? Right. No, that's a really great question, and you know, I've always looked at my background as adding crucial elements to what I'm able to do, and crucially providing different viewpoints and perspectives. So it helps, I think it, for me personally, it's helped to open the horizon. So the, you know, the international affairs work, that really was an introduction to, you know, when you're talking about anything, not even just the sports industry, but pretty much talk about anything we have today and how it is part of this global network and what that means and, you know, what kinds of questions to ask others who you meet, um, counterparts in different countries, to better at least learn or understand how they're doing things and are there ideas that they're working on that might help to inspire you or to you know kickstart some initiatives or collaborate um, the you know the journalism that is perhaps one of the smartest moves I made in my training hmm. because it taught me how to write how to write well how to write quickly under deadline and to focus on getting the main point across with just enough um, supporting detail. And that's something that even in my onward life, I mean, um, in higher education or in government or elsewhere, I always kind of took for granted, but I've encountered that it's not as common as I perhaps might, might underestimate it. Um, and also the, the general introduction to the just the media and journalism world and the code of ethics that uh, it operates under, I think that was for me very important and I've brought a lot of that throughout the rest of my career. And the history, the history work, the, the, the PhD, that was super fun. It was super hard and there was a lot of tears. But, you know, one of the, one of the things that people asked me, they said, well, you know, what did you get out of that? Um, obviously the content, but there's a lot of skills that people don't immediately think of of what it takes to do uh, and complete a doctorate. It's really an apprenticeship, right? You learn how to consume a lot of information rapidly, analyze it to find what the key points are, and then extract that for whatever your needs are. Oral communications, uh, especially if you're teaching written communications, uh, the ability to kind of um, take some ideas from other disciplines and see how they relate to what you're working on. So kind of that larger synthesis. 
uh, angle project management, uh, which I don't know anyone who's actually ever completed one of these programs and not uh, been a master mm -hmm. at managing different projects at the same time. Um, but also uh, collaboration with others, uh, which is something that most people don't think about. You think about uh, a lot of that training is something kind of very, you know, heads down and focused. And there certainly is that, but before you're allowed to get to that point, you spend more than half of your apprenticeship collaborating with others. Um, the last half of the, the apprenticeship you spend collaborating, maybe not on others as one project, but others are helping to collaborate with you on your own writing, writing workshops to finesse everything. Um, so it really helps help you learn how to work as part of a team, uh, but also how to contribute as well. Did, and how um, to take criticism. I'm sure. <laughs> and, and it sounds like a lot of those things, wh when you're looking at through the lens into whether it's basketball, which you, you've been very involved mm -hmm. with, uh, or soccer or other sports, a lot of those skills seem to translate over into the way people coach. So uh, the coaching aspect of, of what you see um, ties into the academic side, it seems like. But mm -hmm. So, so you, when you go about, just to go back one more time before we get off the World Cup, when you go back and, you, and you're looking at the success uh, of the World Cup that the French are having, are you sitting there looking at it from an American journalist perspective or a French journalist perspective, or somewhere in the middle, because ultimately you have to tell the story to an American audience, and how hard is that to do to translate cultures in a sport that may still be a little bit foreign in the United States? Right, uh, that's a really excellent question. I spent the entire World Cup um, watching it as both an American journalist and as a French journalist, trying to figure out who is obviously watching the games and getting my own thoughts and ideas for stories from that, but also reading who is saying what, what are the things they're missing on both sides of the right. equation. Um, and, you know, I did have a few, what I would consider wins, where I did publish um, something that the French press had not yet hmm. gotten out. What, or was, what was that? Uh, the, I think my Blaise, Blaise Matuidi um, um, piece. Uh, Blaise Matuidi is one of the leaders of Les Bleus, even though he's not really um, mediatized at all in English, um, even though he speaks English. Uh, but um, you know, the the French press had written a lot about Matuidi, who has recently joined uh, uh, UB. Uh, but they hadn't really written about his actual role on the team, other than you know what he accomplished on the on the on the pitch. And I published a piece on how he's kind of this uh, soldier in the shadows, as it were. Right? He's not the star in the way on a team of stars. He's not a star in the way that Paul Pogba, Kylian Mbappe, Golo Kante um, really came to shine through. Yet his leadership on the field, from the bench, in the locker room was very critical. You know, there's this great anecdote in the story about how Paul Pogba tried to rally the rest of the team to push through in one of the um, early games uh, because uh, Blaise had been um, forced to sit out with you know, red card issues. And Pogba said, guys, we have to win the next game because we can't let Blaise go home like this. You know, mm. So that's just one example of some of the, the points we, we were able to, I was able to get out in that way. So you know, I was watching at it from a variety of different angles. And 
that's also kind of the, the neat thing about working in the global space is that you are trying to translate and storytell to inform, but you're also hoping to you know, get out a little bit ahead as well. Mm -hmm. um, one of the things I wanted to touch on before we kind of, I again, I want to get back to how you got to this point, which is really interesting, mm -hmm. uh, from diplomacy, journalism, uh, history. But uh, working in an era of Me Too, um, mm -hmm. in an environment around sports, where there are still issues going on with women not getting the access or being put in jobs and people kind of snickering at them, especially, I think, more on a global scale, even more than, than uh, an American scale. Um, have you dealt with that? And then how, as a professional, do you deal with going in a locker room, being around an athlete uh, in a very male-dominated audience? How did you get to that point? And then how do you deal with it as as you know, a woman very much bilingual um, who can really kind of talk the talk. Right. So I'm always very upfront with the fact that when I was doing my, my master's in journalism, I was on the sports journalism track, and I learned many things through that. Part of, part of that program is that you, you trail reporters around the, around the city in different sports so that you kind of learn the ropes. And I would encounter maybe not overt, blatant um, issues, mm -hmm. uh, but, you know, I'd be in press box and, you know, there'd be wink, wink, joke, jokey sorts of things. Nothing terribly rude, but also not really something that, you know, if your mother or sister were there, that would not be appropriate, right? right? That was kind of always mm -hmm. my gauge. And, and I decided that personally, I didn't want to be subjected to that. And I, at that point in time, I didn't feel strongly enough that I could be someone to, you know, be, be, be out front on it and to mm -hmm. help break down those barriers. And so in some ways it did put me off from wanting to travel fully, more fully down that path. But so did the fact of learning what it's really like to be a beat reporter. And it was more the latter where I decided that, that was perhaps not the life I personally wanted. It, it's really brutal and rugged. It's fascinating and interesting. But I've always been much more interested in the story behind the game, so mm -hmm. less the, the box score and the percentages of field goals or whatnot, but more who plays and why, how does that change, why does that change, what are the different social, cultural, demographic, political, um, you name it, factors that go in to the game, mm -hmm. um, and kind of taking it from there. Uh, and so I started to think, well, if that's really what I want to focus on, and I know that I don't want to be a beat reporter, you know, how do I go about looking at these issues um, in a different way and perhaps from a different seat where I wouldn't have to encounter those, those mm -hmm. sorts of issues. And uh, when I went back for the, my history degree, I did choose to do sports history. Um, my, my research niche is sports history, but my larger degree is in history. So, you know, doing the full um, broad training and then winnowing it down. Uh, and I, find th I found that that actually did allow me that space to look at these issues, to examine them, to think about them, um, and to start publishing on them. Uh, and it's something that I continued to do when I left New York and moved to New York, to, uh, uh, moved to Washington to work for the government. Mm -hmm. uh, we were encouraged to continue our own 
uh, academic research uh, on our own time, obviously. And that's when I had finally gotten to the point where I had defended. My first book came out. And I wanted Your to first book, the title was? The Making of Les Bleus, Sport in France, 1958 through 2010. Mm -hmm. And it focuses, while it focuses mostly on the policies of the Fifth Republic, uh, their youth sports policies, a lot of it is also the, the lens of the youth development programs that pretty much produced you know, the guys who won the World Cup this summer, the mm -hmm. women who might win the World Cup next summer, mm -hmm. um, and uh, focuses on soccer and basketball. Rather than all sport, we were trying to get around the issue of: Do you call it football or do you call it soccer? Mm -hmm. mm. Um, so you'd mentioned uh, your time at the State Department. You were at the department, the State Department's Bureau of Public Affairs. Mm -hmm. Tell us a little bit about what that was like and what what you did there. It was fascinating, and I wound up I wound up working for the government, kind of, um, you know, in not really setting out life wanting to work for the government, uh, but when I was about to go on the job market, the, uh, the financial crisis hit, mm. and that year... So that was under President Bush when you were there, or President Obama? Yes, yeah, so this yeah. started... My, my, my tenure at the State Department, it was the end of the Bush administration and then pretty much all of the Obama administration, even though my position was apolitical, I was a mm. civil servant. Um, but know when you had almost half of all history jobs that had been on the market retracted you start to look for other ideas about mm -hmm. what you're what you're going to do and I submitted an application for the office of the historian even mm. though I trained as a European historian um, not as a history is history <laughs> apparently mm. well no so to their credit they said you can learn content and it's clear that you have learned how to learn content we're we're more we're more concerned about what skills have you learned and how do you bring that in, you know, how might you be able to fit in with the office. Um, and so you know, that was refreshing and wound up being a really unexpectedly great and dynamic experience. Um, there were a lot of individual factors that contributed to it, but one of the biggest surprises um, of my professional career was actually being able to be pretty entrepreneurial with my portfolio within a relatively strict bureaucracy. Mm -hmm. you know, it kind of goes counterintuitively, but um, because I came into the State Department with this um, blended background, both obviously the academic, but also the journalism and communications training, and because it was, when the Obama administration came in, one of their primary focuses was public diplomacy initiatives, especially in places where popular public opinion had plummeted um, towards the United States and its policy, rebuilding that. Um, and because there was an increased push on sports diplomacy, you know, that kind of fit all of my check boxes. Mm -hmm. <coughs> so I, uh, I tried to create opportunities where I could bring a lot of that different background, know-how, and skills to the table. Hmm. So the question, and especially since we have a lot of students, faculty, and alumni who listen to the podcast, and, and people are trying to figure out where they're going next. Mm -hmm. Did you have a plan with this whole thing, and did it all just kind of happen? It all just kind of happened. Right. There was not necessarily a plan. Um, one of the career counselors later told me, I'm like the person who's in the rowboat, and you see the lighthouse 
off there. So you have a general idea, but you navigate the currents to get there, mm -hmm. other than one of those people who just parachutes straight in. Um, and you know, I, I've always kind of, that's always been just how I've operated. Uh, I have an idea of what I'd like to, be, to do when I grow up. Mm -hmm. um, and You're not there yet though, right? anyone is ever there. That's right? good. <laughs> I hope not anyway. I'm certainly not. So. Yeah. I mean, you know, yeah. and it's all about finding and creating opportunities that bring you closer or help to enrich you to be able to, right. to do that. Mm -hmm. um, and so, yeah, uh, one of the best pieces of advice that I had, especially when this opportunity with the Department of State came up, was keep an open mind, mm -hmm. toss your hat in, and you never know. You can always leave or you can always say no, but you might be pleasantly surprised. Mm -hmm. So you continue to storytell, find places uh, to tell unique stories. Um, before we let you go, and there's a couple questions we want to ask at the end, yes. uh, the other thing we didn't talk about was your passion for basketball and mm -hmm. the storytelling that you found through French basketball. How is that different from the storytelling of the NBA or the WNBA? Uh, and what are some of the things that, that people may not know that you've discovered? Basketball is a thing. It's a very hidden thing in France. It's a even more hidden thing here in the States. But, you know, look, France is one of the largest all-time suppliers of international talent to the NBA. It sends uh, women to the WNBA as well. Um, but most people just don't realize that they're actually French. Um, and I'm working, I'm working on a uh, book project on this right now. And so I want to be careful of what I say. Uh, without giving away mm -hmm. everything on, on the podcast. But I think it, it is in many ways actually a story of the NBA. It's a story, one part of how the NBA has globalized and the, the pull and the power that it has. But for me, delving into the story, uh, which really began just after France won the European Championship title in 2013, the first time they won gold, and it was you know the big, big objective, Tony Parker, Boris Diaw mm -hmm. um, and company, was that even though France is one of the oldest basketball-playing countries in the world, uh, after the United States and Canada, the game went to France next. Hmm. They've been playing for over 100 years. It's great years. trivia. Yeah. yeah. Um, and even though <coughs> the French have always been very proud of their, their brand of basketball and how they helped to spread it throughout Europe in the interwar period um, and how French-style rules were even in effect in Europe until the World War II period um, and how... French um, administrators have helped to shape the International Federation FIBA um, post-war. The, their, their basketball has been so heavily influenced by Americans, mm -hmm. not necessarily the NBA until relatively recently, um, but by Americans. And this is where the sports diplomacy angle comes in because how did Americans uh, so heavily help influence the development and revolution, perhaps, in French basketball um, in the second half of the 20th century? It's because they wanted to see the world. They wanted to go to France. You know, this gets to that special Franco-American relationship. And they were recruited to play um, when they were in France. They were tall. They usually played back home. And they introduced new styles, techniques, types of play, vocabulary, and it was really this cultural exchange on the basketball court, or what passed for basketball courts at the time um, in France, that really started to kickstart it. You don't have French players coming to the United States to play until a few in the NCAA in the late 
1980s, 1990s, and then the first Frenchman in the NBA in 1997. So who, that, who was that? That was Tariq Abdul-Wahad, okay. who was born mm-hmm. as Olivier St. John, mm-hmm. um, and played with Sacramento first, and then yep. several other, several other uh, teams throughout his career. Mm-hmm. Um, so, so you touch on basketball, and obviously that kind of brings us back to the focus of all these places that you've been, mm-hmm. the ability to storytell across multiple languages, multiple continents, multiple sports, uh, multiple disciplines. Um, when you talk to students and when, you, when you've taught before at some of the places and some of the places you've spoken, um, what are some of the skills, whether it's business, law, finance, that students need to have to be successful? I think one of the most important ones is the skill to listen, which is often something we don't think about. Right. You know, it's just mundane. But actually listening and understanding what it is someone is trying to tell you or if you are the one who is trying to communicate, making sure that the person you're speaking with or storytelling to actually understands what it is you're trying to say. Mm-hmm. Or sometimes what you think you're saying is not what is interpreted and you know I find this especially because I do work um, with a lot of different cultures and international communications um, even a sentence that um, you know has gone through clearance by an American British and Australian based team and we all think it means one thing you know we'll send this piece out and you know uh, South Africans will say oh well no no it literally gets lost in translation exactly Mm. exactly so I think the most important skill is to listen because if you're actually listening, um, oftentimes people are trying to challenge you to rethink some of the previously held ideas or conceptions you had. Whether they're right or wrong, it doesn't matter. But that's also how you learn, mm-hmm. right? To be able to listen and understand what someone is trying to tell you to get different viewpoints. You don't have to agree with it, but uh, the listening thing is something that I have found is the most important, the most overlooked. It's something that I've always encouraged my, my students or my um, advisees to, to work on. It's something I still try to work on. It's obviously not an art that you perfect ever, perhaps, but mm-hmm. um, it's part of an improvement. And there's actually some really cool programs and groups here in the greater New York area that do some really amazing cross-disciplinary um, programs on the art of listening. Wow. Um, and then lastly... You touch on so many areas, journalism, diplomacy, history. How do you stay current with everything that's going on? What are some of the places that you read where you get your information? And then lastly, how do people find you to find out you know, where you're writing, what you're doing, uh, where you're working, who you're working with? So both those pieces. How I stay current, I feel like it's always losing battle. Um, hmm. uh, do you social at all? Yeah, yeah, certainly. Yeah. I'm on social Twitter. My handle is lempika 7 and Spell that for us. L E M as a mother, P as in Paul, I K A seven, uh, and that is my my sports hat, as it were. Uh, I do a lot of um, I try to flag a lot of French sports related things that are uh, topical or of interest. You know, certainly on gender, race, identity fronts, some of these really interesting questions on the relationship between NBA players and global soccer players hmm. like Antoine Gresman and Paul Pogba um, things like that sometimes I will stick in some good for you history mm-hmm. items uh, 
um, or some uh, foreign policy related things as they relate to either the sports world or to the larger conversation. Um, so I use social uh, to, to help curate some of where I'm getting my information. I read key um, US and French dailies, including some of the sports press. Um, I should be listening to more podcasts. Yep. Um, Becoming a thing. I know. So more of a thing. I know. I have lots of them lined up, but mm. I think because I am... Spend more time on the subway, and then you'll be able to kind of... Oh, right. <laughs> yeah. um, and then uh, lastly, you touched on a little bit, but what's some of the... Other than listening, is there some other advice that you give people looking to either get started in a field or change jobs when people come along and say, ah, oh, where do I go next? Because you've, you know, I don't want to say you've been in a career that's almost always been in transition, but you're always kind of moving one piece to meet the next one. Right. I mean, I think a lot of it is just always being curious. Um, when you come across someone who seems like they're doing really interesting things or something closely related to what you think you would like to be doing, uh, ask if they'd be willing to talk about what it mm -hmm. is they do or how they got there. Um, you know, I've always found it's always helped to move me along, meeting people, just um, listening to what they have to say, learning from, you know, their experiences. And oftentimes I find it's these outside-the-box ideas that help to prod you along. Mm -hmm. You know, when I, when, I, when I left New York for Washington, I really never thought that I'd be doing such work in sport diplomacy. Um, but given both the environment I was in as well as what I was starting to hear, you know, gee, we are overloaded at the sport diplomacy office because we get so many requests for sport diplomacy related programs. Is it something that draws people together? Everyone can, you know, understand it and it's a great way to exchange and learn about each other and, you know, people to people basis. I'm like, huh, there's something there. And so mm -hmm. that has helped kind of fuel some of my work in that domain. So always be curious. Great. Dr. Lindsay Krasnoff, historian, author, storyteller. Thanks for joining us on The Cusp Show. Great. Thanks so much for having me. Cool. Once again, this has been another edition of the Columbia University Sports Podcast, The Cusp Show. I'm Joe Favorito for my co-host, Tom Richardson, and we'll see you down the road.